Combo Nation, we're here, man. Can they hear us now? Good. <laughs> Combo Nation, what up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 260 of Combo's Court. And I am Combo. Don't forget to rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button. That's right. If you're listening on the Apple podcast at leave a five-star rating and a friendly comment also man tell a friend to tell a friend about the show and share this episode on social media man it helps combos court tremendously today's show ben goliver washington post nba writer and co-host of sports illustrated's open floor podcast joins in to talk about his new book bubble ball and the nba bubble in which he covered from inside the bubble at disney he gives us some first-hand insight on the bubble, and we also discuss some other NBA topics. Just a fantastic conversation with Ben. Can't wait for you all to hear it. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver. That's B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. You know you can find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Ben Golliver, welcome back to Combo's Court. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great, man. It's uh, kind of like two weeks until my book comes out, uh, Bubble Ball, kind of about my 93-day journey down there at Disney World. And it's a lot of excitement and some nerves and all that kind of good stuff. It feels kind of like we're counting down to the playoffs as well, which we are, you know, so it's kind of nice, kind of simultaneously uh, two big events on the horizon for me. How are you? I'm doing well. I am doing well, Ben. It's great to have you back on. Uh, ben is an NBA writer for the Washington Post. He's also co-host of Sports Illustrated's Open Floor with Michael Pina, man. You guys have some great podcast chemistry, man. Well, it's just like backcourts, man. You just got to have those shared reps. You know, Stockton and Hornacek could do it with their eyes closed. Isaiah and Dumars back in the day, you know, they knew exactly what they were going to do. It always takes a little bit, but Michael's hilarious. I mean, we're, we're a very natural partnership because we disagree about almost everything. Although we have recently discovered, we kind of relish like when the Sixers struggle a little bit. You know, he's a uh, he's a little bit of a Celtics fan. I've always been on Team Jokic in the Jokic versus Embiid debate. So you know, when Curry's lighting them up for almost fifty points the other night, I think both of us were kind of kind of smiling through it and, and having a good time. But uh, you know, all the debates are fun. That's what pods are all about. Most definitely. I mean, everybody's having fun with this Curry thing. But let's start with the bubble. When you were first approached, or I don't know if you wanted to do it, or the company you work with reached out to you, was it a no-brainer for you to cover the bubble, or were, were you hesitant? No, I was really nervous from a health standpoint. I mean, I was living in basically total isolation here in Los Angeles, getting all my food and everything delivered, going out and walking for exercise, but otherwise doing absolutely nothing. And so the idea of going to a, you know, Disney World, which I hadn't really been to previously, so I didn't know the layout that well. And, you know, being in an environment where, hey, the weakest link could determine whether this thing fails, right? One guy goes out for Postmates, the wrong driver, boom, comes in and infects everybody. All those kinds of nightmare scenarios felt really realistic before we were getting down there. But I also realized what a rare opportunity it was in terms of how few media members were invited to kind of go down there and live. 
and I'm a basketball junkie, man. It's, I, I kind of just told myself, look, if you're willing to go to Las Vegas summer league for two weeks, every July and, and kind of dive into those games, of course, you're going to want to see the NBA playoffs in a single site gym where you get to just see, you know, superstar after superstar after superstar play. So, um, you know, pretty quickly, I was able to kind of get over some of those fears and, and it, what really helped honestly was reading up on the rules and the protocols and how they were going to handle things. It was clear to me, they had put a lot of uh, care and attention into them. And I also knew I could control my own existence a lot like all of us can during this pandemic in terms of limiting our uh, interactions with other people in society, um, which I was able to do, you know, pretty, pretty regularly throughout the bubble. I mean, I, I write a lot, I podcast a lot. Those are solo activities, not very high risk activities from a coronavirus standpoint. So uh, you know, those things kind of helped put my mind at ease, but I was very excited going down there. I talk in the book, you know, I didn't get my health clearance until like less than 24 hours before my flight. So it was a real stressful period of like, am I there? Are you going to let me in or not? And, and so from that standpoint, I'm, I'm glad it all came together as well as it did, because it really was touch and go for a while. From everything I'm hearing, people did not really enjoy the bubble from media <laughs> to players was there anybody out there in the media, a ref, players that actually like really enjoyed the bubble? Like they were happy to be there. They said, I like this. I enjoy it. I just like it here. Well, look, it was tough. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, the players complained about how isolating it was. You know, for me personally, I put on weight. I slept worse. I felt more stressed out. Really? Um, you know, I was 3,000 miles away from my parents. You know, there were some wildfires in Oregon while I was down there in Florida. And thankfully wow. they weren't, you know, directly impacted, but it was a really big deal. And to be stuck all the way across the country with no ability to help was really hard mentally. There, there's no question about it. At the same time, you know, there was, there was the ups, but there was the downs. It was challenging, but it was also really quirky, you know, and, and you could kind of hear that from the nuggets when Michael Malone says, I'm not sure why, but our team loves this bubble. You have Jamal Murray, who I like wow. to call the MVP, the most bubble player. Cause he goes down there and just goes absolutely nuts in the playoffs in a way that most people didn't really expect. And so I think people tried to find their new routines. I write about Scott Foster, one of the veteran referees who just got really into pickleball and, and he's been into pickleball for years. <laughs> so he, he organized pickleball tournaments with all sorts of people playing every single day in 90 degree heat, they were out there. And so, you know, for me personally, I look back on it actually kind of fondly. It's not that I want to repeat it, but I do felt like, it, you know, I feel like it was a great personal challenge. You know, it was a, an amazing opportunity. I saw every single playoff game from the second round on in person, which is never going to be possible again unless they go to some bubble in the future just because of the logistics and the travel. And so I felt like I was able to actually follow this year's postseason closer than any I'd, I'd ever felt, uh, you know, followed before. And I also enjoyed this year's title celebration more than any that I'd ever been to previously because it was half. Uh, New Year's Eve party, right? But also half college graduation. We have the players running down the hallway, screaming profanity, saying, we're free, we're free. You know, because they know that not only did they win the title, the Lakers did, but they also get to go home the next day. It was like this double excitement. And, you know, I'm getting just sprayed by champagne with Le by LeBron James and, and Danny Green. And these guys are just looking for anybody to spray, frankly, because it were so few people in the building to celebrate with. And it just, you know, it, it was just a you know, different environment, quirky. And I always love the quirky and the different. I think as a writer, you're looking for those kinds of situations. And I went into this project knowing, look, this is going to be once in a lifetime, right? I mean, we're, ne we're never going to see anything like this again. You know, a bunch of, you know, sometimes multimillionaire, hundred millionaire athletes 
living in Disney World hotel rooms to, to fight for a title. I mean, it, it doesn't even sound real when I'm trying to describe it after the fact. So that's why I wanted to document this book, you know, for future generations of fans who are like, they did what? They went down to Disney World? That sounds crazy. Was it really that great? Was it hard? What, you know, what was it all about? Hopefully I kind of capture all those different things. Most definitely. I mean, I, yeah, the toughest part had to be being away from family for everybody, uh, for sure. Are there any moments or chapters in the book that you think really stick out to you and that maybe someone that would read the book would really stick out to them, like something they never knew about? Well, I think the chapter I'm most proud of, I take a really deep dive into the Milwaukee Bucks decision to boycott the game uh, against the Orlando Magic during the middle of a playoff series in response to the Jacob Blake police shooting. Right. Um, obviously, that was a very intense emotional time period. And so I described the kind of days leading up to it when a lot of the players were talking about a boycott. I describe, uh, you know, some of my conversations with Doc Rivers when he was the coach with the Clippers. You know, they almost boycotted in response to Donald Sterling's racist comments. And so I, I try to just really approach it almost minute by minute on that day because I'll never forget it. I've covered NBA games since 2007. That was the first game I ever showed up, plugged my computer in got my water and my iced tea set up and looked up and said, wait a minute, there's only one team here. What, what's happening? You know, you need two to tango. What's, what's going on? And, you know, I remember, you know, the Orlando magic left the court and I'm kind of peeking in their locker room and I can see Vucevic and he's looking back at me with the same face I've got, which is like, what are we doing? What's, are we playing? What's happening? You know, it was just confusion in that moment. And then it was a stakeout, you know, for three hours, we were waiting outside their locker room trying to figure out, hey, are these guys going to come out and talk? What's their statement going to be? It wound up being front page news for us at the Washington Post, uh, which is rare for, you know, a sports story. It was covered by all the major news stories. You know, it was a, you know, one of those protests that's going to go down with probably the 1968 Olympics, um, you know, uh, Black Power protest in terms of some of the biggest statements ever made by athletes. And so I really try to dig into what it was like being there. And some of the details were kind of funny. I mean, those guys went into the locker room, you know, not necessarily realizing how long they were going to be in there. And as they're kind of making their calls back to Wisconsin to talk to politicians, to talk to Jacob Blake's father, you know, they didn't have a bathroom. So a couple of these guys, either they're leaving us hanging, like we're waiting for them all to kind of come out and tell us what they're going to talk about. And we're standing out there kind of waiting for them to talk. And they were in there so long, they had to kind of come out, use the bathroom and just kind of quietly shuffle back in the locker room continue these very serious discussions. And so there's just these little moments like that where, you know, again, it's just because they're in a Disney world gym, you know, the locker room doesn't actually have a bathroom. They're not supposed to shower together, of course, because of the COVID protocols. And so we're all standing here waiting for them to deliver this major statement that they delivered. And, you know, you just have these kind of quirks of the moment where here goes Giannis has to use the restroom, walks right back, doesn't say a word. Here goes George Hill wearing uh, you know, his, his statement t-shirt and same deal. And so, you know, things like that, I'm never going to forget. And I really tried to drill down in lots of specifics um, on that day in particular, because I think, you know, when you're looking back on the entire bubble experience, you know, probably the game that everyone's going to remember is the game that actually didn't get played. That was such a powerful statement. Probably one of the most powerful statements in NBA history, right? Yeah, I mean, there's not a great comparison point. You know, people talk about how they almost boycotted the All-Star game, you know, over free agency rights, you know, way back in the day. But certainly it was a, you know, a, a stance that, you know, I think a lot of people coming into the bubble were saying, well, these Jersey slogans, right. Or, you know, they're putting black lives matter on the court, but you know, is that really activism? And some people might push back and say, you know, what were the players doing enough? 
And I thought that was, I mean, that, that statement got everyone's attention. I mean, you had Trump and, and his, uh, you know, confidants weighing in, um, you know, from the highest levels of political power. I know my story actually got retweeted by AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she was kind of putting the importance of their boycott into perspective from a labor movement um, issue, uh, which was a whole different angle that kind of uh, got injected into that conversation. And of course, it took three days for them to put the whole thing back together. And so that wound up being something where we're all sitting there kind of wondering, is this it? You know, are, are we all going home? I had a friend who was getting ready to FedEx me some stuff um, that night. And I said, hey, you know, wait, let's let's wait for a little bit here. Let's see how this goes, because uh, I don't want to have to be clearing out of here and, and the package shows up and, you know, I, I'm not even here anymore. And so it was that dicey in those uh, you know first couple of days after the boycott. But ultimately, they were able to kind of, you know, pull the thing back together. And I think that their unity as players sent a statement, too. You know, I think that we focus so much on this idea of like, OK, well, we're not going to take the cord. But the fact that they were able to come together, reach a resolution with the owners to use the arenas as uh, polling places uh, in a yeah. lot of uh, situations. I mean, yeah. you look at NBA markets, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Detroit. Atlanta, those were all crucial markets in terms of the presidential election in November. And all of those had ties with the players in the bubble or, uh, you know, other other NBA affiliations. So, you know, I think from that standpoint, the players deserve a lot of the credit, not only for the initial statement by the Bucks, but for how they handled the aftermath. Big impact for sure. That's fascinating. And, you know, we're going to move on from the bubble. But I think when they have this 30 for 30, 10 or 20 years from now, they might be calling you first, Ben. You have a well, book. You have a book on I it. I did one interview with them while I was there. Uh, I can't remember okay. who was there actually tracking LeBron. I don't, I don't know if it was a 30 for 30, but the same uh, uh, producer or videographer who did the last dance with Michael Jordan oh, really? actually showed up in the bubble and was following LeBron and AD around for a lot of the playoffs. I'm, I'm telling you, they got awesome footage. Their camera was right over LeBron's shoulders when he was spraying us all with champagne. So I know I'm going to look like an idiot in that segment. There's no... <laughs> There's no question about that. If they use that footage, I'm going to look like, a, you know, an absolute moron just drenched head to toe with my, my suit, uh, which probably still smells like champagne, you know, seven months later or whatever it's been. Um, but I imagine that there will be, you know, plenty of content coming out of it, you know, down the road, reflective content. And you know, that was on my mind when I wrote the book, too. I think 2020 is going to go down as one of the most important years in NBA history, right up there with like 1980 when Magic showing up, 92 with the Dream Team, 2003, LeBron's rookie year, yeah. and that era starts. Because what you really had is the international crisis with China and Hong Kong. You have Kobe Bryant's death, David Stern's death. You have the pandemic shutting the season down in the middle of the season, threatening to ha not have a champion crowned for the first time in NBA history. And then you have the bubble to kind of pull it all together and save it. And, and not only, you know, crown its champion, but generate roughly a billion dollars in television revenue. What a story, you know, what an incredible, you know, business story, but also public health story, sports story, history story, all of it, all, all in one. So I think that's why you're going to see those kinds of documentaries that you're talking about. And it's why I wanted to write the book too. My listeners are probably going to have no idea what I'm talking about right now, but I listened to your pod and I was very interested in the Clone Wars, the NBA Clone yes. Wars. I, well, give me your team. Give me your team. Well, because, first well, of all, explain I, how, it, yeah, explain how it works first. Well, you, I'll let you explain how it works for the, cause okay. there was like an added, there was some added stuff in there, but I'm just talking about the five. Okay. My, Mike, Michael took my point like directly from my mouth when he was talking about IQ and I would also add, you know, I would have LeBron. I would also add at the end of a close game, 
LeBron is able to set the table a lot better than KD can at the end of a game. And I think KD is by far the second best player in the world um, behind LeBron, but that's why I would go with LeBron. And obviously KD has shooting and, you know, he's, he's probably a better scorer, but that's why I think end of games, he could set the table and make things happen at the end. But your thoughts so the, the, playing the Clone Wars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The debate with the Clone Wars is if you could have five copies of any individual player to win a game, which player do you take? Right. And so generally you're looking for guys who have lots of versatility and like wide ranging skill sets, right? If you took five centers, then you're going to have a hard time guarding point guards. If you took five point guards, you're having right. a hard time guarding centers. So naturally it puts you towards those big, you know, two way wings who can get by well enough defensively, but also can dribble, handle, pass, shoot. You basically want triple threat guys on offense, right? My argument for Kevin Durant is that, okay, look, he's given up a lot in the playmaking department to LeBron, but the spacing aspect would be so huge because, you know, you can't really double off of him, and he can get a bucket one-on-one against anyone, including LeBron. We've seen that in the finals. And so if you start to throw help on him, now you've just got wide open three-point shots for Kevin Durant, and those are absolute money too. I mean, that's part of why Brooklyn has such an incredible offense this year. So with LeBron, the concern is, can he shoot the threes well enough to keep the defense honest? Or the other argument would be, is he such a good passer that if you had a guy who could make the kinds of touch passes that LeBron does, if he doesn't have to be on the ball and he's able to kind of channel his movements off the ball, maybe you're just running a layup line every single night because he's able to just hit these like, you know, these uh, checkmate type passes like boom, boom. And then next thing you know, it's a layup behind the defense. It's a really, really interesting debate. I mean, I think those two are the clear top two. Yeah. I mean, I think Kawhi is probably, you know, somewhat in this conversation, but I would say a step back. And yeah. I think the big guys just have too much trouble. Anthony Davis is actually an interesting uh, option because he's improved his ball handling, but I don't think he's a good enough passer playmaker to kind of keep up and really get the ball moving. There's probably too much settling going on um, from a jump shot standpoint, but uh, is there anybody else you want to nominate? No, but I would say, I think it depends on if we're talking about prime defensive LeBron or, LeBron now as a defensive player, because I think there's some aspects of his offensive game that have even gotten better now, but obviously he's not the defensive player. And you talk about spacing. I don't know if he'd be able to chase Kevin Durant around now, how he would maybe five years ago, you know? So I think that's a big aspect of it. I know the fatigue factor for sure is, is weighing there on LeBron. I mean, defensively, he's been pretty strong for the Lakers. I mean, he took a couple of years off there in Cleveland where it's like, all right, LeBron, you know, we know what you're doing here, but. You know, the, the fact is they've been number one all year on defense. They had an excellent defense last but, year. But he, he, LeBron, he, he LeBron was different, though. He, oh, yeah. From a, from an athleticism and a, yeah. and, a, and a bounce standpoint, too, you know, getting up to get those chase down blocks or just – I mean, yeah, yeah, he was on a different level physically. But, you know, he's got the intelligence stuff working for him on the defensive end, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. I, I do think I'd probably prefer KD guarding LeBron rather than vice versa. But it's really close, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that – you know, LeBron doesn't necessarily use his like bulk, you know, like you'd, you probably want to get LeBron on the block a little bit against Kevin Durant, try to get, try to get him in foul trouble. You know, if you're playing five Kevins versus five LeBrons, um, just because he does have that strength advantage. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's an endless debate with no good answer. It's tough. We're not even going to get into if you could clone maybe three or two, like one a year. That, that was, that was a lot. We're not going to get into that now. And I think five Steph Curry's, wouldn't be able to compete. I think LeBron is the best, then KD. And then, yeah, I think Kawhi is a good one for the third. I think so. But st- Well, let me let me ask you about this one, though. So five okay. Steph Currys versus five Zions. Who wins? Because it's like it's Man, like the all-shooting it's, it's all versus the all-size and dunking. Like, 
could five steps protect the rim? Could they all just kind of like gang up? You know what I mean? Right around the hoop and keep Zion away from the rim well enough. And then Zion's going to have no chance to guard Steph on the perimeter. He really struggles actually to get out there and guard shooters and close out. And then he's really liable to pump fakes as well. Like if he closes out, he's a little bit late. There's a pump fake. You can go by him. I feel like five steps might win, beat, beat five Zions. I don't know, though. Especially if he's playing the way he has this past month. <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, unbelievable. I, you know, 40-plus in April, I believe. I think it's five 40-point games right now. He had 153 there mixed in. They're winning. It's a fascinating identity crisis for Golden State, though, because it's all happening with Wiseman injured. It's not a coincidence, you know? Like, all year they were juggling – do we develop Wiseman? Do we go for wins? And they tried to kind of have it both ways, which is always tricky to do. And Wiseman really struggled as a rookie to kind of get himself to become like a positive impact making player. And as soon as he's out of there, Curry just absolutely takes off. And when you're looking forward to next season, when you've got playback, Wiseman's development is going to have to take a back seat. You know, I mean, it's just not going to be as important to their organization. They're going to have to try to win once Clay's back in the lineup. So I think for me, it's, you know, it, it kind of puts his future not into doubt, but you just kind of wonder exactly how is important is he um, to the Warriors going forward? Because if Seth can play at this level without him, he's showing he can still be an MVP level guy. I mean, in, in that situation, you've got to go for wins no matter what. You're basically saying that Wiseman doesn't fit with Steph's timeline. Yeah, more or less. I mean, he could eventually, but, you know, the timeline for next year is really what he's not fitting with. And, you yeah. want to give Curry every chance he's got to win. You know what I mean? You owe it to him. You're paying him, you know, massive amounts of money. He said all the right things about wanting to stay there in Golden State. I mean, there's a real organizational obligation to do what's in Steph's best interest, in my opinion. Yeah. So what's your thoughts on the MVP race? Because obviously Steph's been shooting at a pace that we've never seen before. But also, I mean, Jokic had a crazy game last night. I think it was a double overtime. Uh and I would even, if it was three days ago and you would ask me, I would say Embiid. This is one of the craziest MVP races we've probably ever seen. We knew it was going to be a good race coming into the season, kind of no way around it, because, uh, you know, nobody was going to give it to Giannis three years in a row. And then you knew you were going to have LeBron factoring in. And then you just knew other guys were going to step up because it was going to be a weird 72-game season, right? right. Um, to me, the answer is Jokic. And I, I've said that actually since the first quarter of the season, even when they weren't as good record-wise. He's been the best night-to-night -night player that I have seen from a, an impact-making standpoint of anybody in the league. Now, I think it's a large part of it is because he makes his teammates better, but he's also stepped forward as an elite alpha scorer. I mean, he's an unbelievable shooter. Three-point shooting has gone way up. He's got every trick in the book. He's super-duper clutch, doesn't get enough credit for it, and he just doesn't say anything in interviews, so people overlook him. But, you know, Steph last night probably got 100 times more tweets than Jokic did. Jokic had just as good of a game. I mean, you look at the numbers, it was absolutely insane. He's been doing it all year long. So to me, it should be Jokic. And I say that not just because people say I look like him. You know, it's not any kind of bias there. <laughs> it's, it's just respect for what, he's, what he does. He does it the right way, too, man. There's a lot of San Antonio Spurs you know, just, you know, punch your clock and go home to Jokic. And I love that about him as well. Man, it, it's, it's tough between those three. It's tough between those three. Um, do you feel the condensed schedule has led to these injuries, even though the NBA has come out and said that the rate of injury is no more than prior years, but there are more star injuries. I mean, you got to see bubble Murray up close and personal. That's such a tough loss at this time for them. Obviously no, 
every injury is a tough, like is tough, but this is like really bad timing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the condensed schedule has something to do with it? I think it's tough on anybody, not just the condensed schedule, but just the weird disruption to like, when was your off season? How long was your off season? How much time did you get off? Right. I, mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lakers, Nuggets, Celtics, and Heat, the final four teams in the bubble who had to play, you know, basically into September and October, all either got off to slow starts or are dealing with injuries right now. That just doesn't feel like a coincidence. You know, to me, that says, okay, well, these guys have been conditioning their bodies for their entire lives to play a typical schedule, and now it's been thrown up and, and out of control. I know there's a lot of fatigue around the league. You know, there's no question about it. I've heard it from, you know, coaches, executives. People are just trying to grind through this season. You know, before the year, I called it uh, kind of the bite the bullet season, right? You're just trying to get through it, get to the other side of the pandemic and hope everything comes out okay. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. And the injury stuff is tough. I mean, a lot of these national televised games just have not been what we hoped for. You know, you get the Lakers without AD and LeBron. It's like, come on, you know, what are we even watching? Or the Nets without half their guys. But I'm confident we're going to get to the playoffs and have a really good playoffs because you're going to have teams back in their home court arenas. Fans are ramping up in a lot of different situations, including in like Los Angeles, which was one of the latest to do it. Um, you know, they're, they're starting to have fans at these Lakers games. That's going to give you a little bit of an atmosphere. You know, once you get into the postseason, you might even see some celebrity sightings, which would be nice because that's always, you know, adds to the kind of the stakes, um, you know, of these postseason games. And so even though this has been a really tough regular season all around, I think the playoffs, you know, there's there's a real chance to have some awesome playoffs. I mean, if we get Katie LeBron in the finals, if the Nuggets make some crazy run without Murray, uh, you know, if you get the Sixers finally reach the first finals or uh, the Bucks, you know, same deal. Giannis breaks through. All of those are awesome storylines. And so I, I'm pretty excited. And the Clippers, too, by the way, everybody's sleeping on them. They've had a great offense lately. Kawhi's playing phenomenally well. Paul George has been great all year long. Yep. They're healthier than they were last year you know, in terms of their main guys. So we can't kind of sleep on them either. So I think there's going to be a lot to, to kind of digest as we get to this playoffs. You mentioned Paul George. People were so hard on him during the bubble, man, and you were there. I mean, Pandemic P is, is a funny nickname, though. It is a funny nickname. <laughs> yeah, look, he's an easy punching bag because, you know, he just, you know, he doesn't really have a filter. He just kind of says what's on his mind. And I think a lot of times that rubs yeah. people the wrong way a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, when I look at, you know, the Clippers, they just didn't really want to be there. You know, ultimately is what it boiled down to. I mean, and when you, that's the feeling you, you lose, got, that's the feeling you got when you were there, you could just see it. Yeah. And just watch the games. I mean, if you're blowing three consecutive double digit leads and in the post game interviews, everybody's offering a different explanation, different response. Um, they're not on the same page. You know, guys are in and out of the lineups with injury issues. I mean, they just, you know, they didn't want it as badly as everybody else. And, you know, yeah. I, I think that, um, Part of it was off-court camaraderie and chemistry. You know, LeBron and AD were inseparable in the bubble. You know, anytime we saw them in front of the media, those guys were together. They were like BFFs, you know, like, like you could imagine. Kawhi and Paul George didn't have that same warmth in front of the cameras, off the cameras, you know, when they're in the arenas and everything else like that. It's not like they were strangers, but yeah. there wasn't that same personal bond. And I think when you're stuck in Disney World for three months, that kind of thing really matters, right? You look at the Sixers. They had a lot of chemistry issues last year. Those popped up. And, and blew up their season in the playoffs. The Rockets, right? Well, ben, well I mean, Ben's injury, too. Yeah, and that was an under-discussed factor for sure. But when you're talking about getting swept out in the first round and, you know, yeah. in, in such ugly fashion and the coach has to get fired like two days after it's over, I mean, chemistry factors, you know, would we, we definitely wait in there. They just, you know, and again, you could see it at these games. Before game one of that series, 
Boston's dancing around. They're loose. They're happy to be there. I think I wrote in the book, it was the Sixers were sort of like the, the kids in elementary school whose parents forced them to be in like a recital and they don't actually want to do the music. And they're just like, oh God, we got to do this. You know, that was their attitude. I mean, that's what they look like. That was their body language. I mean, MB put up a good fight, but you know, these guys just, you know, weren't in the right mental place. And you heard it actually after game three as well, or sorry, but after game two, before game three, where the Sixers were saying, oh man, I wish we were going back home for game three. We miss our crowd. And we're all sitting there saying, guys, we've been in the bubble for more than a month. Nobody has home court advantage here. We know you're a good home court team during the regular season, but you can't yeah. have those kind of mental things weighing on you. Uh, you're, you're not refocused enough to, to succeed in this environment. So I, I think the chemistry stuff was absolutely crucial in the bubble. And I, and I go through that a lot in the book in terms of which teams had it, which teams didn't. But, you know, give Philly credit for this. They've come back with excellent chemistry this season. The personalities are aligned much better. I think the lineup configurations help 100%. that because everybody's got roles where they're successful and 100%. Tobias has a better role. Simmons is healthy, like you mentioned. So it's not like you can have good chemistry forever or bad chemistry forever, but it's more about who really was able to find it there down in Disney World. Yeah, no two years are the same, and this year is going to be a lot different. I think PG-13 is going to play a lot better, and Philly is just going to be better. I mean, from the front office to obviously Doc's coaching, the roster construction, MB playing at an MVP level, I think this playoffs will be a lot different for them. Last thing before we get out of there, before we get out of here, uh, Zion Williamson, Madison Square Garden, was his favorite place to play outside of New Orleans. Um, should Knicks fans be hyped about this? Will Zion end up in New York? File it away, all right? Just put it in your back pocket. You know, you don't need to race to that one. We got a long time until <laughs> Zion's going to be eligible for any sort of free agency or trade or any of that stuff. But, I mean, the thing I love about Zion, he is still – everybody refers to him kind of like a big kid. That's what everybody said, you know, during his rookie year as well. Um, and he is so young, but – he can't hide his emotions. You know, if you do ask him a question, he actually, I loved his answer because he said, thank you for asking me that because I, I've heard him say that before. It's clear sometimes he just gets up to the, uh, you know, the microphone. He's just kind of like hoping people are going to ask him things. And he's such a genuinely nice kid. I haven't spent that much time around him, but the time that I have like an all-star weekend last year, I've just been blown away by who he is as a person and kind of an ambassador for the sport. Um, so that smile is genuine. I mean, he can't fake that, you know, that level of excitement about being there in New York and, I love it, you know, because I had a really good time going to an all-star game at Madison Square Garden, you know, getting to have that experience. I even remember back in middle school, you know, like I think my drama class, we took some sort of a trip to New York City to learn about Broadway. And we got a behind the scenes tour through MSG. And I, like, I still remember that, you know, they had big cardboard cutouts of Patrick Ewing back then. And you know, it's just, I'm a, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I know. I know. I'm a New Yorker. Well, so I'm, pre I'm preaching to the choir here. That's what I mean. Yeah. But, I, you know, it, look. <laughs> This is the next step for the Knicks, though, and I, in all seriousness, not to steal Zion, right? But the next step is you need to make, have a good summer here to stabilize this growth you've had this season, right? Build on Julius Randle as that most improved player. Build on RJ's big jump from year one to year two. Go out there and sign Kyle Lowry. Use him as your Chris Paul, similar to how Phoenix did it. Stabilize, get yourself thought of in a different manner as a possible destination market. And then you fast forward a couple of years, even if it costs you a lot of money on Lowry, all of a sudden, maybe guys like Carl Anthony Towns, maybe Devin Booker, those kinds of guys with the Kentucky ties look at that New York Knicks franchise a little bit differently. And it's not this punchline that it kind of was for Kevin Durant. You know, I mean, he came out and said it, you know, the Knicks aren't the cool thing right now. Well, that could change too. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take long for that to change. And so yeah. to me, you don't want this to be like a one year uh, step forward and then one step back for next season, right? So I, I really hope they can get Lowry 
as that placeholder point guard. I think it would be a great fit for them. I think he'd work with their other pieces that they've got there. And look, it might be only a two-year deal. It might not turn you into a title contender, but it would help shore up the reputation stuff, which I think really matters because right now I think the Knicks are still trying to escape the, the shadow of maybe some of ownership's previous failings, if that makes sense. Ben, great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Where can we find the book? Where can we purchase the book? And where can we find you on social media? So the book's available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's Books, wherever you get your books. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at ben.goliver. I've got a video previewing the book. If you want to just kind of see inside, I got some pictures that I took when I was in the bubble in the book, which is kind of cool because I'm a big photography guy. So I was excited about that. And of course, they can read my stuff at the WashingtonPost.com slash sports. Thanks so much, Ben. Good luck with the book. You're always welcome back on the show and talk soon. Talk soon, man. Take care. Thank you for tuning into Combo's Court and big shouts to Ben for joining in. We appreciate you. Combo Nation, don't forget to rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button. If you'd like to support the podcast even further, I'll leave a link in the description for the Combo's Court Patreon page. Also, take a screenshot of this episode if you have Instagram Post it on your IG stories. Tag me at 1-2-COMBO. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. I'll share it and be on the lookout for episode 261. Combo out.